I don't know how your communication works here, but we all should be thankful for the birth of Luke Benjamin at 10 to 9 this morning. And so uh, um, if you haven't already, thank the Lord for that. Well, before we begin, let's pray and ask God to open his words for us today. God of heaven, we come to you utterly dependent upon your spirit to bring alive this text and to teach us. Lord, you've told us that these texts from the Old Testament are not just meant for the people of long ago. They are meant for us upon whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. That you wrote these words with us in mind. So we pray that you would help us to mine the, the truths and the, the, the gold of your word from our text this morning. Help us, Lord, to see what you are about and uh, in this text. We want to thank you today for the safe birth and arrival of, of Luke and uh, thank you that his parents and uh, the rest of this congregation can rejoice in his birth. And so we thank you for that. Open the word to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You ever notice that someone or something can set off a chain of events that ends up in ways that you never dreamed? Who would ever have thought that the creative mind of a SIBA employee in Greensboro, North Carolina, would have inaugurated a series of events that would lead someone, a person, to pastor a church in central Ohio? You see, SIBA is a chemical company that produces dual herbicide. And that advertising employee thought, we need to get a greater market share of farmers for this product. So let's film a commercial in the heartland of our country. In fact, let's do it in, in Creston, Iowa. And let's use their 4th of July parade as the backdrop. That'll give us, probably it'll reach some farmers if we do that. And so they did. And soon that commercial was playing on televisions all across the Midwest. Lynn Sweeney, a teacher from Marion, Ohio, was watching television one night when the commercial came on. She said to herself, hey, that's Creston, Iowa. That's Becca Tallman's hometown. She turns to her husband, Bob, and says, you know, we haven't seen Tim and Beck since we were in Creston for their wedding. And you know what? Tim is looking for a church. And so the next day, she went to the Christian school where she was teaching to talk to Dale Shaw, who was a deacon at LaRue Baptist Church, and said, hey, I know a guy who's looking for a church. Um, why don't you give him a call? And as they say, the rest is history. I started 38, we started 38 years of living in LaRue, Ohio, all because an employee in Greensboro, North Carolina, had an idea. Now, in our text this morning, which is 1 Chronicles chapter action that brings about God's purposes for his people. Now remember that the history related in Chronicles tells the story of God's intention to restore the unity of his people around one king and one temple for the purpose of worship, of joyful worship. The focus of the history of First and Second Chronicles, or one of the focuses, is the temple. The temple, that meeting place between God and man where forgiveness and reconciliation and worship are all accomplished. 
We've seen thus far that God has brought David to the throne and that David has the intention of building a temple. But as we saw a few weeks ago, God says to David, no, 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 you're not going to be the one who builds the temple. In fact, I'm going to give you a greater house than what you could give me. Nevertheless, you are the one who's going to conquer the enemy so that there's peace, so that the temple can be built. Now, in the chapters immediately preceding um, chapter 21, in uh, 18, 19, and 20, you see the record of David then defeating all these enemies. It's the record of him defeating all the enemies so that there's peace. And you remember what God had said, when there's peace in the land, I'll build the temple. And David has conquered the enemies. He's brought peace. He's taken all the booty from the, um, the conquest that he's made, and he sets it aside for building the temple. But where will that temple stand? And our text tells us how the site for the temple was chosen. It tells us how it got to the place where it was built. It relates the chain of events that bring that choice to pass. And that chain of events, bringing about God's purposes regarding the temple, begins, his place of worship, begins in the most unlikely place. It begins with Satan. It begins with Satan. These events begin, be, begin with the work of Satan who produces an incredible mess with his temptation which eventually leads to the site of the temple. So let's look at the story in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1, reading through the first verse of chapter 22. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, Go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring me a report that I may know their number. But Joab said, May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. Are they not, my lord the king, all of them, my lord's servants? Why then should my lord require this? Why should it be a cause of guilt for Israel? But the king's word prevailed against Joab. So Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came back to Jerusalem. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to David. In all Israel there were 1,100,000 men who drew the sword, and in Judah 470,000 who drew the sword. But he did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering, for the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. But God was displeased with this thing, and he struck Israel. And David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing. But now, please, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. And the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Choose what you will, either three years of famine or three months of devastation by your foes while the sword of your enemies overtakes you, or else three days of the sword of the Lord, pestilence on the land, with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is very great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man." So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell. 
And God sent the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw and he relented from the calamity. And he said to the angel who was working destruction, it is enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the the Lord standing between earth and heaven and in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders clothed in sackcloth fell upon their faces. And David said to God, was it not I who gave command to number the people? It is I who have sinned and done great evil. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand, O Lord, uh, my God, Be against me and against my father's house, but do not let the plague be on your people. Now the angel of the Lord had commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and raise an altar in the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word, which he had spoken in the name of the Lord. Now Ornan was was threshing wheat. He turned and saw the angel and his four sons who were with him hid themselves. As David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and saw David and went out from the threshing floor and paid homage to David with his face to the ground. And David said to Ornan, give me the site of the the threshing floor that I may build on it an altar to the Lord. Give it to me at its full price. Then the plague may be averted from the people. Then Ornan said to David, take it and let my lord the king do what seems good to him. See, I give the oxen for burnt offerings and the threshing sledges for the wood and wheat for a grain offering. I give it all. But King David said to Ornan, No, no, but I will buy them for the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours, nor offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David paid Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the site. And David built there an altar to the Lord and presented burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord. And the Lord answered him with, with fire from heaven upon the altar of burnt offering. Then the Lord commanded the angel and he put his sword back into its sheath. At that time when David saw the Lord had answered him at the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, he sacrificed there. For the tabernacle of the Lord which Moses had made in the wilderness and the altar of burnt offering were at that time at the high place in Gibeon and David could not go before it to inquire of God for he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. Then David said, Here shall be the house of the Lord God and here the altar of burnt offering for Israel. And so the chain of events unfolds that brings the temple to that particular place, Ornan's threshing floor. Well, what do we see here? First is this. God works through sinful purposes of man to accomplish his redemptive purposes. God works through the sinful purposes of man to accomplish his redemptive purposes, the first seven verses. Now, David's taking of a census came at the instigation of Satan. Now, notice why Satan incites David to sin. He stood against Israel. He hates God. He hates the love he has for his people. And he hates those people. D.A. Carson, I don't know if you're familiar with Carson. He's an incredible New Testament scholar. He wrote a hymn called The Kingdom of Our God. And he describes the character of Satan. Here's what he says. The enemy is fearsome. His fury terrifies 
His arrogance is loathsome. His foul, foul mouth vilifies the Son of God in heaven, the angels he installed, the offspring of the woman, the people he has called. The father of all murder, his passion is the lie. In sin, a tireless worker, a tempter who will try to dupe us with seduction or persecute to death, to challenge God's election, deny the Spirit's breath. That's the kind of opponent we have. He hates God, he hates his people, and he will seduce us with his lies. And here, he instigates David in some fashion that's not told us, but he instigates David to take this this census. Now, the deal is, though, that even though Satan instigates this, David takes full responsibility for what he did, and all the responsibility does fall on him, as the story and the action indicates. Now, David never should never have taken that census. He should not have done it. Now, a census in itself is not a sin. It's not a sin to take a sentence. In fact, God commands at certain times census to be taken. When they left Egypt in the Exodus, God commanded a census to be taken. Just before they crossed the Jordan, God commanded that a census be taken. And in fact, God even uh, commands a certain ransom census that should be taken Uh, periodically we find that in Exodus chapter 30 verse 12 where we see the Lord said to Moses when you take the census of the people of Israel then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them that there be no plague among them when you number them however David here seeks to take this census without any kind of command from God without any divine merit Um, and it looks like a military census and the reason why I say it's a military census because it involves Joab, his chief of staff. Joab is kind of like the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, right? He's the top dog. He's the guy who's in charge of the military forces. It involves Joab and his military commanders. Joab, in verse 3, mentions that this is a census of troops, right? He comes back not with a census of all of Israel, but with a census of the number of troops ready to fight. And um, so, so it looks like it's a military census. And it appears that David has turned away from his absolute reliance on God for victory, as we saw in the previous chapters. If you read the previous chapters, David is relying on God for the victory. God gives him the victories. And um, those accounts make numerical advantage insignificant, right? It, it, it says the numerical advantages were insignificant. It's what, it's what God did. So David began to trust in multiplied troops. He's starting to say, I need to, I need to be able to know who I can draft. Um, and so he's, he's thinking more of multiplied troops than the promises of God. He's relying on that. He's relying on the... On the uh, mere predictable human resources rather than the dynamic, direct intervention of God in his victories. In fact, what's interesting here, it says Joab did not number Benjamin and Levi. He kind of said, I'm not going to do this whole thing. This is not a good thing. And the thing that, that we have to remember is that God explicitly commanded that the tribe of Levi was never to be conscripted into military service. And so he's violated the law there, for one thing. So he's, um, 
So he, and, and he'd forgotten what he himself had written in Psalm 20. Here's what David wrote in Psalm 20. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. He seems to have forgotten that. And before you get, before we get so hard on David and say, look, you wrote this in the psalm. How could you do such a thing? Please, look at your own life, right? You'll go home today and maybe in your journal, your devotional journal where you write your thoughts about God, you'll write some magnificent things. And then two weeks from now, you'll just stumble all over yourself in sin, right? So let's not get too hard on David. David, on the other hand, did say that. He does recognize that it's the Lord that gives the victory, not the military forces. But here, what he's done is he's starting to depend on something he can quantify. How many military guys do we have? But notice this. David not only sinned in lack of faith, but he sinned in his determination to follow this course of action. He began to despise the counsel of those who advised him. Joab had said, don't do this. But since he's the king, his word prevailed. Joab was a hard-headed military man. In fact, I read something this last week where the writer called Joab the thug general. <laughs> and if you read the story of Joab, he is the thug general. He is a sword-wielding, unmerciful um, guy. I mean, he is bloodthirsty. But even he is saying... David, don't do this. And David persists in doing it, right? He persists in it. So his sin is not only his lack of faith, his sin is persisting in doing what's wrong. Well, he's the king, and his actions led to terrible consequences, not only for himself, but for all of Israel. Because remember that the king... The king, we talked about this before, the king represented God to the nation and represented the nation to God. So he stands in that place, right? He's the representative. What he does affects the nations. And by the way, when you read through First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, you see that happening all the time. Wherever the king goes, the people go, Right? And the king stands as, as God's representative to them, and he stands as their representative to God. So what he does is going to affect the nation. God, God now has to exercise discipline on his erring monarch, but also bring disaster on a guilty nation. But notice this as well, that God works through discipline and mercy to accomplish his redemptive purposes. He works through the, through the sinful actions of man to achieve his redemptive purposes. But he also works through discipline and mercy to accomplish those redemptive purposes. So what we read, and, and you'll, you'll forgive me if I don't read the whole text again, okay? You refer to it, because it takes a while to read all this, right? In verses 8 through 14, the king realizes his sin and confesses it to God but God says that he's going to have to take disciplinary action. He still must take disciplinary action. Consider Sam, the good-hearted kid who lives next door to you. He's kind of a careless driver, and one day he's got the family car out, he's got his dad's car out, and he wrecks it. He gets into an accident with it. He immediately confesses 
to, the, to his neighbor whose car he just wrecked and to his dad whose car he just wrecked that what he did was wrong. Now his dad now says, okay, you're going to have to get a job so that you can pay for the insurance that's necessary, okay? And you've, you've got to pay every cent of the damage. Now, is his dad an unforgiving tyrant? No. Does his dad love him any less? No. But his father wants him to learn a lesson. There are consequences. You have to pay for your insurance now, okay? When that's on you, you're going to learn a few things. His dad's not unmerciful. His dad's not a tyrant. He wants him to learn a lesson. And when you become careless about sin, God often brings bitter sorrow into your life in order to teach you about that, in order to help you. And he sends this message through Gad, the seer. Now, what is a seer? A seer is just another word for a prophet, okay? And Gad, from what we can see, Gad and Nathan are both what you would call court prophets. Okay, when you look at uh, like, um, oh, Nahum or Micah or those prophets, they're kind of, they're kind of like free-floating guys, right? They're sent to the nation. But Gad and Nathan were court prophets. Isaiah is another court prophet. Isaiah was a court prophet for Hezekiah. In other words, these prophets served the king. They were part of his cabinet, if you will. And they were the ones who helped the king. And so Gad gets a message from God. And so Gad takes the message to David and says, here's what God says. You have a choice here. Three years of famine, three months of invasion, or three days of plague. What are you going to do? It's your choice. God will work through discipline. He's going to bring discipline to help David. But not only see God's discipline, but see God's mercy here. Okay? He shows mercy by giving, giving David the opportunity to choose. And by this, he tests his faith. He tests his faith. Famine would place the people at the mercy of foreign merchants who for three years would supply the kingdom with the imported grain that they probably would need. Invasion would have placed them at the mercy of unpredictable and cruel kings. The plague placed them unmistakably in the hands of God and his mercy. That's how David says, I commit myself to the mercy of God. And so David shows great confidence in the reliability of God because he would rather fall into the hands of the judge of all the earth who does what is right than into the hands of vindictive, unpredictable men. Right? I don't want to fall into the hands of men. I'm going to give myself into the hands of God and his mercy. David knew that God is merciful and that even though he may discipline us for a time, he doesn't remain angry forever. And so he chooses to fall into the hands of his merciful God. God then disciplines the nation by a plague that struck 700,000 soldiers. A sentence appropriate for a king who would put his trust in numbers and in his soldiers. Do you see here, first of all, the necessity and the mercy of God in discipline. First, there's necessity. Discipline is necessary if you're going to learn to obey. Have you ever been in a classroom 
where there's no discipline. You ever seen a classroom where there's no discipline? How much learning takes place? Very little, if any. See, discipline, and I'm, this isn't original with me. This comes from Jay Adams. Discipline is education with teeth. Discipline sees that the lesson is learned. You see? Without discipline, there's no learning. David had to learn. The people had to learn. And you have to learn, and that is why God brings hardship into our lives as well. So we learn. It's for the purpose of learning. But God always tempers his discipline by his mercy. God is mercy, and he is always merciful. Even when he brings hard times, even when he brought this plague onto David and his people, he was being merciful. So God works through discipline and mercy to accomplish his redemptive purposes. He does that. Now the last thing we see in 21 verse 15. So from verse 15 all the way through 22 verse 1. You see that God works through the intercession of his king. To accomplish his redemptive purposes. As the destroying angel went throughout Israel with this plague. He comes to Jerusalem and there he stopped at God's command. Because God was grieved. Now. If we look at that, um, in verse, I'm sorry, by the way, he killed 70,000 men, not 700,000. I was going to say, didn't wipe out most of the military men, 70,000. But be that as it may. It says that the Lord saw and he relented from the calamity. Now, actually, that term translated relented can be translated was grieved. And I think the translators of the, of the English Standard Version don't want to give us the idea that God changes his mind or makes mistakes. Because if we use the word grieve, it makes it look like maybe God had changed his mind or maybe he was sorry for what he'd done. And if you say that, then you have to admit that God sinned or that he could not foresee what his actions might do or that he's not all wise. If he's grieved by that, uh-oh, I made a mistake, all right? But this term, the ESV says relent, which means he stopped. But it doesn't carry the weight of that word. It's not about action. It's about emotion. Relent means I'm going to call an end to it. But grieve means he felt something. Okay? The word here can mean to be sorry, to repent, to regret, sometimes even to be comforted or to comfort. And the origin of the word seems to come from the idea of breathing deeply. Like what? A sigh. (sighs) Right? Like a sigh. What the writer is doing here is attempting to picture in in human terms God's response to what is happening. Now God knows about it. He knows everything that's going to happen. God doesn't have to grieve in the sense of, oh no, I made a mistake, right? I didn't see that coming. No, but what he's trying to do in some way, is try, in human terms, is trying to communicate the nature of God, okay? 
He's, he's searching for words, and he uses this word. And what he's trying to communicate is, God is not a heartless, triumph, a heartless tyrant, unmercifully mowing down his people. That isn't God. He's a compassionate God who does see what happens. <laughs> All right? He is a compassionate God. And so he tells this destroying angel, leave Jerusalem alone. Now at that moment, David sees that same angel hovering over Jerusalem above Ornan's threshing floor. Now he and the elders of the nation had already begun to repent. And they were probably headed to the altar at Gibeon. Now I say that because verses 28 through 30, okay, it it may seem to mix things up, but 28 through 30 is a summary. It's not following chronologically. It's a summary summarizing what's just happened. What does it say? At that time when David saw that the Lord had answered him at the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite, he sacrificed there. For the tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses had made in the wilderness and the altar of burnt offerings, were at, the same, were at that time in the high place at Gibeon. But David could not go before it to inquire of God, for he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. What's happening here is he's summarizing here in verses 28 through 30 the whole incident. And he indicates that David did not proceed to Gibeon because he was afraid that the judgment would continue while he was traveling. That's what it's saying. It's saying David didn't go to Gibeon. Essentially, he's indicating he, he didn't go because he was afraid that if he did that, the destruction would come to Jerusalem while he was traveling to Gibeon. All right? Now, here's the point. Ornan also sees the angel and his four sons and him hide. They see that angel hovering over the threshing floor. Now, look, why didn't everybody see it? I don't know. The writer doesn't tell us. Some reason he gave David and Ornan the ability to see this angel, this spiritual being, all right? We're able to see it. And so David, fearing greater judgment if he travels, not wanting to wait another second, calls out to God in intercessory prayer. He calls out to God on behalf of his people. And it's fascinating to me that what does he say? He says, put it all on me. Put it all on me, okay? Don't take it out on them. And like this, he's like Moses who intercedes for the people when they built the golden calf. In Exodus chapter 32, Moses says, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They've made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. I'll take the judgment, Moses says. David says the same thing. I will take the judgment. David, who had first prayed in verse 8, right? In verse 8, he'd prayed, How, Now I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. Now begs God to take away the guilt of the people and to put the penalty on him. And so God answers that prayer by sending a message of salvation to Gad by the very angel of the very angel who's the instrument of judgment. There's hope for deliverance through a sacrifice. So David, in obedience to the message from Gad, went to Ornan's threshing floor, 
to build the altar and offer a sacrifice that would deliver his people from death. Now, Ornan, who also sees the angel, says, look, I'll give you everything. I'll give you everything. You can do that. I'll give you everything. And David says, no, I'm not going to take it from you. I will not take for the Lord what is yours or sacrifice a burnt offering that costs me nothing. I'm going to pay for it all. So he bought the floor and the entire surrounding area, as well as the oxen and the wood for sacrifice. He puts it all on the altar, ready to sacrifice to God. Fire comes from heaven, consumes it all, showing that God accepts the sacrifice. And then God commands the destroying angel to sheath his sword, to to desist from any more judgment. And so because of David's obedient intercession on their behalf, the people are saved from destruction. And we find then, through the rebellion of sin, the pain of discipline, the mercy of God, the intercession of a king, what happens? Here is where the temple is going to be built. Here is the place. On this place, where David offers a sacrifice, this then was going to be where the temple was to be built. The temple is the place where sinners will find forgiveness. Now the question is, where is the temple now? Right? God wrote this so that they knew the temple was going to be built there. This is their history. It's, remember, the purpose of the historian in, this, in these two books is to show us that the temple was central in God's working with his people. But it was pointing them forward. Remember, these are people returning from the Exodus. They have no temple. They built a little one. But yet he's saying God's intention is one temple, one king, one people joyfully worshiping. But now there's no temple. So what? So is there no place of forgiveness? And the thing we have to understand is that in these books, God relates this story not as the final answer to the problem of our sin, but to keep pointing us forward to the ultimate answer. This is written to point us forward. This was written to those people back then so that they'd be looking forward, that be looking for, the, for God to fulfill this, Right? These are the patterns that we have to see if we're going to understand God's redemptive plan, okay? You've got to see the patterns if you're really going to understand this. What are these repeated patterns that keep showing up? Here they are. Um, It tells us something, okay? Like what? You see a holy God who will not let his people treat sin carelessly. You find a God of mercy who disciplines those he loves. You find a God whose wrath is turned away by a costly sacrifice. You see a God who accepts the intercession of someone who says, put it on me. Deliver them by punishing me. All right? You see that pattern. You see the pattern of a God who calls for the worship of people who have been forgiven. Here's where the temple's going to be. All of that is supposed to give us an understanding of how does God work and where does it all point to? Where does it end up? And you know, it points to the ultimate answer in Jesus. This was the intention of God in writing this book, to keep pointing us forward. Here are the patterns. Get the patterns. So that the people of that day would see the patterns, right? 
and be looking for that. By the way, let me just add a footnote here. Jesus says to the Pharisees at one point in John chapter 5, if you had read the scriptures, you would know me. And you know, as a kid, even as a teenager, I'd say, Jesus, okay, I'm reading the Old Testament. I don't see you either. I was as blind as the Pharisees. And then, years later, I might add, I started seeing these patterns. This, do you see the patterns here? Do you see what's happening here? These patterns are repeated. By the way, they're repeated. They're, these kinds of patterns are repeated over and over and over. I just mentioned Moses, right? Moses, right? Blot me out. Deliver the people. David, don't, don't account their guilt to them. Account it to me. All right? You should see those patterns. You keep seeing them over and over and over in the Old Testament. And so it does point...
justice. God freely offers him. And like David found on that day, the place where mercy and justice meet. Have you ever thought about the providence of God that brought you to Jesus? Have you ever thought about how God brought you through the events of your life, through the people in your life, how he brought you to this Jesus? The one who took upon himself for you the guilt of your sin. The one who is the meeting place between God and man. The one where forgiveness is. The one who turns away the wrath of God. Look at the chain of events in your life. Now look, I, I have a pretty good, I have a lot of confidence that probably all of us here have come to Christ. And yet I can never walk away from a text without saying, look at your own life and consider that God may be leading you to Jesus. In the providences of his life, of your life, he's leading you to that place, just like he did with David, to the place where he accomplishes his redemptive purposes. Let's pray now. Just thank God, shall we? Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus who is that place, is the temple, is the place of worship and forgiveness, is the meeting place between God and man. Lord God, would you Help us to see that your providences are always gracious. That even as we saw in all that happened with the plague and the judgment, destruction, the discipline, the mercy, even the instigation of Satan, all leads to one place, to the temple. Would you help us to see that everything in our life leads us to Jesus, even now as believers. We're always left at the feet of Jesus. We're always left there. God, help us to see that and help us to live in light of that. Help us to always look to Jesus as our confidence. Never to look anywhere else, but only to him. Help us to see that your providences during the week accomplish your redemptive purposes. God, bring that home to us. Help us to see it so that we will always be a hopeful people, looking at Jesus, knowing that that's where you want us. And we thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen.